Welcome to Season 8 of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, a fascinating journey into the lives of top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They reveal entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories many you've never heard before. I'm your host, George Hoffman, and please follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and through our partnership with Last Word on Sports Media Podcast. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is proudly sponsored by Mr. Duct, Chicagoland's premier comprehensive air duct cleaning and ventilation for residential and commercial properties. Their motto is simple. They're upfront and honest. Find them on the web at mrductcleaning.com. This week, we feature the talented Chicago TV sports host and reporter Chuck Garfine. You know, I think we just always had a mutual respect for each other. And then when he comes over to NBC Sports Chicago, we just had this dynamic, a history, so to speak. And it just has evolved. And it's now at a point where, you know, I'm trying to compare it to something, but he's, he's become like a really close friend. These days, when you think of Chuck Garfine, you think of Ozzie Guillen. Not bad company to be with. Garfine hosts the White Sox pre- and post-game show with the always colorful and entertaining former White Sox manager. This Chicago native settled in with NBC Sports Chicago in 2004, where he's done a variety of jobs, most notably covering the White Sox, and where he's won numerous Emmy Awards. But his road to success was a winding one to say the least. Toss a dart somewhere in the U.S., and Garfine has probably worked there. So, Chuck Garfine. Tell me a story I don't know. George, uh, thanks for having me on. A story you don't know. There's a lot of stories people don't know about my career. Believe it or not, it'll be 19 years that I'll have been working at NBC Sports Chicago this July. The big story or stories that people don't know about me is what happened with me, with my career before I got to Chicago I think my broadcasting career and my life, so to speak, was in a spin cycle for about 10 years, crisscrossing the country, working at all sorts of jobs in all sorts of cities. I was at one point unemployed for a year. At another point, I was called into uh, the station. It was the CBS affiliate in Detroit. We were all called into the office one day and were told that they were canceling the news and laying the entire staff off. It was like the Mary Tyler Moore show, the final episode. Everyone just <laughs> lost their jobs. I hooked on with WABC in New York. After that, as a freelance sports anchor reporter, things were going great. And then after a few months, I was told the general manager's wife and her friends did not exactly like me on the air. And I was told to look for another job. Wait a second. The general manager's wife didn't yes. like you on the air. And so you, yes. got, you got ousted. This is what I was told. I didn't get ousted right away. I was just, it was just suggested by my boss who did not say this to me. He said this to my agent, but the agent, uh, but, but, but my boss at the time, the news director just told me, Hey, just look, I'm not going to let you go right away, but you should look for another job. Unfortunately, two weeks later, I got a job at Fox sports net in Denver and I was on my way, but these are the kind of things that happened in my career before I got to <laughs> Chicago. So it has been a, a topsy-turvy career, to say the least. Lots of stories, a lot of fun things that have happened here in Chicago as well. But uh, that's a story and a half, I think, of some things that have happened uh, in my career that people probably don't know. I yeah. didn't realize until last week that you were uh, on the ground floor of Comcast Sportsnet, which is now NBC Sports Chicago. You joined them in 2004 and made what I think you would call a, you know, auspicious debut. Yeah, worst blooper of my life <laughs> occurred on the first day I was on the air at then Comcast Sportsnet Chicago. So imagine growing up in Chicago, dreaming of one day doing television sports in Chicago. I get the break. It's my dream job. It's October 1st, 2004. And I'm covering a Notre Dame-Purdue game. This was, I believe, Drew Brees or... Yeah, I think Drew Brees was playing for Purdue. And I'm doing a live shot for our very first show. It was called Sports Night at the time. And, you know, I've been doing live shots for a while. I know how things work. And I can, I'm going to be in the top of the second segment. And in the first segment, I hear in my ear, in my IFB, I can hear, you know, the broadcast. And they always make sure you can hear... The broadcast. So 
I say, yeah, I can hear it. I'm good. I'm good to go. They go, all right. The producer says in my ear, we're going to break. Out of the break, we're going straight to you to talk about this big Notre Dame-Purdue game coming up tomorrow. So they go to break, and in my ear, I'm just hearing nothing. It's silence. You do not hear the commercials when you're doing a live shot. It's just silence, silence, silence. This silence is going on way too long in my head. I'm thinking this is a very long commercial. There's something wrong here. And in my head, the only reason, the only way they're going to know that I can't hear what's going on on the broadcast, I'm just going to walk off the shot so they won't even come to me. And at that point, they'll have to say in my ear, hey, Chuck, uh, we're on in five seconds, whatever it might be. So that's what I do. I'm like, I'm going to get off the shot here. I don't want them coming to me because I can't hear what they're saying. Well, here's what happened on the air. Pat Boyle is anchoring the show. He does this on-camera lead-in where he says, hey, Notre Dame and Purdue have a big game tomorrow in South Bend. Let's go live to South Bend. Chuck Arfine is there. Chuck, take it away. <laughs> and literally, literally right after Pat Boyle said, Chuck, take it away. I am seen on camera for one second, and I walk away. <laughs> oh, <shot>. brother. <laughs> And then they come back to Pat and he says something to the effect of, well, Chuck took it away. <laughs> that was my Chicago sports debut. Did anybody call you up and say, the general manager's wife didn't like that you did that. Go find a new job. <laughs> I mean, I was like, you know, I, I'm, I'm not in therapy, but if there was ever a day <laughs> I needed to be in therapy, it was that one. Uh, it, just uh, an awful, awful start to my career. It was a, a rough day for me to like, <laughs> I just, I mean, I'm still like looking, thinking back on it 18 years later. I can't believe that actually happened, but yeah, we, we move on, you know, it, it's all not fine and dandy and all roses every day. Uh, there's, uh, trials and tribulations. And that was certainly a, a, a low point for me in my career. It's happened to me in radio as well, but you began covering the White Sox the next year. 2005, good season to join. They went on to win the World Series. What a thrill that had to be for a kid who grew up a White Sox fan. Tying run at second, two out. Palmero over the head of Jenks. Uribe charges, throws, out! And the White Sox have won the World Series. This came from the heavens for me because you look back and you know it took 10 years before I can get a job in Chicago, and that was always the goal. Even though I got breaks at times. It didn't feel like my career was getting the kind of breaks that were long lasting or certainly uh, it seemed like an uphill battle, even though I was moving up throughout my career. And then I get this job in Chicago and like, I'm like, here we go. That's great. And I'm covering the Sox. And this is a team that I grew up watching. And it just seemed like from day one, opening day, they just knew how to win. They found ways to win, and you got this magical feeling from the get-go. There was the time during the uh, latter part of the regular season where their 15-game lead went down to a game and a half, and you're yeah. thinking, what's going on here? But to be honest with you, it, it went the postseason went so fast, it was like done in a blink of an eye. You know, it was they go 11 and one. 11 and one, the White Sox went that season. And to be a part of that, you know, my you know family has a long history with you know, Chicago sports. My grandfather, who uh, tragically passed away in May of 2005, you know, came to this country in the you know, late 20s and was a big baseball fan and never got to see the White Sox win a World Series. So uh, I was kind of carrying that with me during the postseason run. And certainly when they won the World Series, I just still couldn't believe that. I felt lucky. I felt lucky that the first year I'm working in Chicago as a sportscaster, I'm assigned to the White Sox. They win the World Series, and I got to have a, I'll say, a front row seat to some very special games, very special experiences. Uh, so uh, that was uh, certainly probably the number one highlight for me was being able to cover that. I was with them on the road trip before they clinched and then right straight through to the World Series. I remember two events that stand out for me. The first one was the team that was chasing them, the Indians who had cut the lead to a game and a half. And all the Indians needed to do in the last three games 
in Cleveland at Jacobs Field, which were three beautiful days of weather, full houses. All the Indians had to do is win one game and they make the playoffs and they become dangerous. And the White Sox swept them mm. and they were out. And the other was game three of the World Series in Houston. It was the 14th inning, I think. And Jeff Blum is at the plate. And I turn to Cheryl Ray Stout and I say, there is no chance this guy is going to hit a homer and on the next pitch, longest game in the World Series history, Blum hits it into right down the line. It is gone. Jeff Blum, the former Astro, goes deep. And here in the 14th inning, the White Sox take a 6-5 lead. And now you're getting me to remember Boston, the 57-minute inning in which El Duque came into a jam and struck out the side. That was That inning, by the way, lasted 57 minutes. I didn't know that. I did not know that. At the time, the Red Sox were the defending champs, and I was in, well, I was supposed to be in the press box, and as I have learned in this profession, TV broadcasters, TV reporters do not get special uh, treatment when it comes to being in press boxes. There was no seat for me to sit in. I was watching the game on television in a, like a, I don't even say like almost like an office in the Red Sox press box. I'm like, you know what? I want to experience this game. So I actually stood in the crowd and watched 90% of that game. That's funny that you did that because we had to sit in the cafeteria and then I walked in and Joe Cowley's seat was open. He wasn't there. And I sat in the seat. Oh, no way. Oh yeah. Yeah. I said, I said, Hey, where's Joe? And nobody knew sat in his seat for the rest of the game. <laughs> That's my only visit to Fenway park. I would tell myself and I would try to tell other reporters, we need to cherish this and appreciate this because this doesn't happen where you show up to cover a baseball game and you're getting Ozzy Gian. Just especially for beat writers, he's just feeding them so much great stuff. Like managers don't say this kind of thing. He, he, there was no such thing as coach speak or manager speak. It was not only informative, it was entertaining and <laughs> it made our jobs. I mean, George, you were there so much. It made our jobs so much more enjoyable. You weren't just covering a baseball game. You were covering Ozzie Gian. Well, remember, Ozzie really was front page news from the beginning, not just, you know, back page fodder. His fights with Jay Mariotti uh, and Kenny Williams were so mm -hmm. celebrated. I have to believe deep down the White Sox didn't mind it. They drew nearly 3 million people the year after they won the World Series. At that time, negative publicity really sold. Yes, yes. You know what? It's so true. They were on the front page all the time, thanks in large part because of what Ozzy was saying and doing. He never got anything good for this city. And I'm the, I think I'm the only white. I'm the only one to 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 get him, you know. But you know, I just I got I don't know where's my, where's my time talking about Jay. You know, Jay's a piece of shit and he, he, he want to know he should be here right now, talk to me right now. Somewhere along the line, after he left, and I, I just think I'm looking back at, and you, no one's really asked me that question. I haven't really fully thought about that, like how our relationship grew and you know where how it became what it is today. You know, I think we just always had a mutual respect for each other. And then when he came, comes over to NBC Sports Chicago, we just had this dynamic, a history, so to speak. And it just has evolved. And it's now at a point where, you know, I, I'm trying to compare it to something, but he's he's become like a really close friend and someone I truly respect and admire. And I pinch myself that I get to do these shows with him and with Frank Thomas. I mean, there are two guys. If you would have told me 20 years ago, 30 years ago that I'd be doing shows with them. <laughs> I would say I have won life's lottery that I get to do this. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I grew up, I grew up a White Sox fan. I watched Frank Thomas and Ozzie Gein play for the Sox. And now I work with them. It's truly incredible. When's the last time you had your air ducts cleaned? Here's the best solution, Mr. Duct, a name Chicagoland has trusted for over 20 years. They work on your furnaces, air conditioners, and do repairs, maintenance, and installations. In other words, they're your all-around company for air quality choice and more. Mr. Duct provides on-site commercial ventilation cleaning estimates. 
You'd be hard-pressed to find better. So give them a call at 888-4-MR-DUCK. That's 888-467-3828. And Mr. Duct is the right choice to clean your residential dryer vents. They do a full inspection to make sure your dryers are running properly. Mr. Duct works with schools, health facilities, and office buildings to make sure you're breathing clean air. Their testimonials are endless, and with good reason. So don't think twice when you're ready to work on air ducts, dry vents, and so much more. Just think Mr. Duct. 888 for Mr. Duct. That's 888-467-3828. And find them on the web at mrductcleaning.com. During your time covering the White Sox, did you ever picture Ozzy and where he's at now and your partner? Never. Never. <laughs> ever, ever, ever. <laughs> Remember how much Ozzy used to rip the media? Well, now he rips them on the air on our pre and post game shows. So I was like, the last thing Ozzy's going to do is become a member of the media. And uh, when I say rip them, like, you know, he'd rip Jay Mariotti, you know, like he, he respected what we all did for um, jobs, you know, and he gave us so much, but I never thought he would literally go on TV and do it. And, you know, credit to my boss, Kevin Cross for making it happen. Flush it. Flush it. Do we have a toilet sound? Give, give it to the city. Flush that one. <laughs> give it to the city. Go give it to the city. Yeah, flush it. Give it to the city because I mean, you had your little, you saw Ace, and he not pitch good today. But then you think about it now, if there was ever a manager or former manager who belonged on television, it was Ozzy. It is Ozzy. So it makes perfect sense. But back when I was covering him, I just never thought he would transition from the dugout to doing pre and post game shows with me. And sure enough, it's happened. <laughs> I'm very thankful for that. Is it easier for you to do this when a team is underachieving or bad, or is it easier to do the show when the team is good? I would actually give you the same answer that Ozzy Guillen would give about managing. The easiest season I ever had to cover, the easiest season Ozzy Guillen ever had to manage was 2005. Mm -hmm. You give me a win and I go on that post-game show, that is the easiest show I can do. It is a love fest about what just happened. It is so easy. You don't have to even think about what you're saying because they just won. And it's it's like going into a winning clubhouse or a losing clubhouse. Very well, easy to ask questions to players or managers after a win. Well, last Where year had you... to be a horror chamber for you then. Yes. So last season was the toughest season to navigate. And, you know, I, you know, Ozzy was quite vocal about things I was, and I do not like to criticize at all if I don't have to. Uh, but we don't, we don't make it personal. We do not make it personal. And yeah, I covered some rebuilds, right? And when the White Sox will lose 99 games, lots of losses there, lots of losses. But when the team is expected to kind of lose, that's one thing. When the team is expected to win, and they continue to lose, and they lose the way that this team was losing, we had to be authentic, right? And, you know, tell people what we saw. And, you know, I also had to think about, well, I never want to make things personal. I know these guys have jobs to do. Playing baseball, hitting a baseball is the toughest thing to do in sports, right? You know, and I know that, you know, they watch the show. The, the players watch the shows, the, you know, Tony La Russa would watch the shows and you have to keep that in mind. Uh, I'm not trying to hide anything, but you know, I, I know also who watches the shows and that's the fans, the fans watch the shows. Sure. And if we come across as being cheerleaders, well, that's not very authentic. And I know that the white Sox, I mean, the white Sox did, you know, despite the criticism that they got and I'm crediting the front office and just the White Sox organization. I have done this job for, you know, doing pre and post game shows for what, how many years it is, 16 years, something like that. Uh, I've never gotten a phone call about what, anything I've said on the air, you know, uh, and I do believe I'm fair. I, I don't, you know, I'm not a, a big hot take guy, um, but I'll, I'll say what I think needs to be said. You know, so there was a lot that needed to be said, unfortunately, about last season. They won 81 and 81 and 
you know, I think what last season revealed was all the warts that this team had. And it had to be difficult because the lightning rod through all of this, of course, was Tony Larusa. I mean, he was getting criticism before he was managing. And, you know, I'm one of the very few people, if the only one who was there when he first came to town in 1979. He was a lightning rod then because nobody knew who he was until they started winning and got to the playoffs in 1983. But I would imagine it wasn't that difficult to criticize him because most of the time he deserved it. You can put Tony Russo right here next to me. I will say the same stuff. The way I love him, mm -hmm. the way I admire him, I will say the same stuff about him. I said, you know what? I'm a little disappointed because I thought you could be the guy. When you were walking, was it Trey Turner or was it uh, Muncie? No, Trey Turner. Trey Turner. On a one-two count intentionally to get to Max Muncie. You know, there was a lot of head-scratching moves, a whole bunch of them. Uh, so the season was good for our ratings. I think a lot of people would certainly stay and watch to see what Ozzy is going to say on the air. Uh, or even they wouldn't even watch the end of the game and they would just flip back over to us to see what we'd say <laughs> on the air. When the, when, the, when the White Sox lose, I, as the host of the show, need to find a way to get you to not change the channel. And when the White Sox lose, how many times do you really want to keep watching to learn more about this loss that just happened? Well, but so, you've got, you got Ozzy there and sometimes Frank. But when you have Ozzy there, people probably do want to stay. And the two of you have quite a chemistry. Right, but I can't just say, hey, Ozzy's going to be here. <laughs> Stay tuned. I got to give you a little bit, a little carrot or two saying, well, Ozzy's not just here, but we're going to talk about this. This is why you need to keep watching, and this is why you need to keep watching. And these are real things, real reasons to do it. So there is, uh, there's more to what I'm doing than meets the eye, and what for, we're all hosts do. You know, you're, we call them teases, right? When you go to break, don't just say, hey, we're back after this. No, I need to keep you. I want to keep you watching. And that's the other thing is that when the White Sox win, we get we usually get bigger ratings because they just won and people want to hear more about it. But um, where I really have to do my job is after the losses, not only have it be an entertaining, informative show, but get you as the viewer to want to watch the show. The White Sox started in a way, Chuck, I'm not sure you, me, or anyone would have expected. It was an absolute disaster. Tell me what you were thinking about when the season began and how it progressed, both as a professional and as a White Sox fan. Yeah, so I was hoping and certainly cautiously optimistic that what happened in 2022 would not happen again. And as April was unfolding, I realized not only was 2022 looking like it was going to happen again, it's worse. Only chopped up the middle. Anderson misplays it. They're going to get one. They get one. I thought maybe Arias was going to keep on rolling around third, but he holds there. Cleveland has wow. the lead two to one. Had to take his eye off that ball because that's a break. That's got to be an error. Well, at the end of the day, folks, he's not a very good shortstop defensively. The White Sox went 7-21 and 21 to start the season, and I just could not believe uh, this was happening. So, yeah, I was a little concerned, and they're not out of the woods. They had a much better May. Yeah, it was uh, surprising to see them play like they did. And there's this stat that is just downright ludicrous, which is if you – Take into account the core, the core of this team since 2021. I'm not using Jose Abreu anymore because he's not on the team. But if you look at Mancada, Jimenez, Grandal, Robert, and TA, you want to guess the percentage of games they have played together in the lineup since the start of the 2021 season. George, take a guess percentage-wise. 20. 4.9. Oh, my goodness. I didn't think it was that low. So, you know, you can have all the best players, but if they're not on the field and they're not performing, you end up having seasons like 2022 and so far 2023. With that said, how can you see the White Sox getting out of the woods here, even in a weak division? It certainly looks as if this is the end of the road for this particular team. Well, you said the one word or two words that gives you hope. It's the AL Central. In a way, that's a, an excuse for the White Sox to con continue to middle, middle their way through this 
it's not acceptable. They should not be in this situation to begin with. They should be just running away with this division because of the talent that they have. So there's going to be a tipping point this year when the Sox have to decide, okay, wherever we're at in the middle of June, do we believe in this team, not just to win the division, but can they actually like compete next year and the year after? And there's obviously a bunch of guys whose contracts are coming up at the end of this season, or there are options, uh, team options, everyone from Lance Lynn to Tim Anderson, uh, Mike Clevenger, Lucas Giolito. So if things aren't interesting now, they're about to get really interesting in about a month. You know, I don't see a full rebuild happening like they did before. There are enough pieces you can win with here. And a lot of money will be coming off the books next year and the year after. You can find a way through this and win again. I don't know if you can really throw them a lifeline at this stage, but let's consider what's taking place now and what took place last year. Because earlier in this interview, I asked you, is it tougher when the White Sox lose or when they win? And obviously it must be tougher when they lose, but particularly this season, I mean, there's got to be a lot of TVs that are clicking off, if not ever clicking on. Yeah, ratings are down this year because of this season that they're having, and rightfully so. Uh, I do hear from a lot of people that when they are so frustrated with the way the Sox are playing, they will not watch the game, but they will flip on the post-game show to see our reaction to that game. I would love to be doing winning post-game shows all the time. Usually the best post-game shows are the losses. And so that <laughs> has been kind of like uh, the, I mean, the consolation prize, if that makes any sense. You've had a lot of shows like that this year. Yeah. Yeah. And we've added a, uh, a salty meter and a happy meter my salty and happy meter, how I'm feeling after games. Um, so we've added that to the show. Um, I wish there were a lot more happy shows than salty shows. And I don't always feel salty, but, you know, there comes a point where, you know, when you lose three out of four in Kansas City with your season on the brink, oh, yeah, the salt meter was at a 10 out of 10 for me. But then when Jake Berger hits a walk-off grand slam against the Tigers, uh, happy meter is 10 out of 10. So uh, there's a lot of games. There's so many games. It is a long, long season. And so I try not to get caught up in the, uh, in the losing streaks unless it's like 10, like the White Sox had in April. And I usually like to wait until June to see what a team is. And usually by June, I know what a team is. They have shown flashes, not good enough flashes in my opinion, but uh, hopefully a, a strong uh, end of this first half will uh, put this team in a better position because honestly, all they need to do is easy for me to say it, but all they need to do is to go on a run, win eight of nine, and they're right back in the race in a big, big way. So now you're 20 and you are interning for one of the most talented out of the box. You talk about Zig. He'll always zag. Mark Jean Greco, tell me a story. I don't know about that experience. Yeah. So this was like the white whale for me. You know, I was like, you know, if I'm going to be a, a sportscaster, I need to meet Mark Greco, And then I find out in college, wait, 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 I can intern at Channel 5 and watch him work? Even though I went to USC and I was so honored and blessed and fortunate to do that, uh, the education that I really received in my college years was interning at channel five and watching mark gian greco be a sportscaster Sinkers say the bears will win yeah say win big i don't know they haven't been able to cover for most of the year the bears today were made 12 point favorites over the packers randy wright should start a quarterback for green bay jimbo covert will likely join jay hilgenberg in wearing one of those shoulder harnesses they ought to just yoke the whole offensive line together they better off oh, here's a story people don't know about mark gian greco he types with his two index fingers that's how he would type his sportscast up. He types he not... with his two index fingers on his left and right. That's how he would type. Yeah, so I interned for them for the summer. And this is actually funny. I was like the most motivated person I knew in, you know, in my circle, right? I knew I wanted to do this. I was going all the way to the top. This is what I was going to do. But Mark Greco. 
you know, he did, he got it right. He loved sports, but also knew he was also there to entertain and uh, wanted to have fun. This was not science class. I think Mark Jean Greco captured the cartoon element of sports casting. And that is what attracted me to it. And so to be around him and watch him deliver a sports cast from nothing to what turned out to be every show, something, and many times something else, uh, it was a sight to behold. You touched on this earlier. Your ascension to your current job is really like a very long road trip. Matter of fact, correct me if I'm wrong, you worked in seven cities in seven years. You could have been a traveling salesman. <laughs> I felt like one. <laughs> we heard some of the moves, but why all the moves? Seven cities in seven years. Yeah, you know what? It just, it was, um, God, how do I even begin? There were, I have a lot of friends and colleagues who were around my age and they would get better breaks, I, I would say, or just they would get a job and they'd stay somewhere for a long time and they would grow in that way. But my growth was, as I look back, was by losing jobs or having everyone get laid off or getting another opportunity somewhere, but the city wasn't right for me or the station wasn't right for me or I had a better opportunity there. Um, or, you know, as I said, the general manager's wife didn't like me, you know, so uh, this is a very, very tough business to break into, to stay in, um, to navigate, and you have to have thick skin in so many ways. And with social media now on top of it, uh, this is not for everybody. But I, despite all the moves and all the cities or towns that I lived in, I loved what I did. I've always loved what I do. So it was always worth the sacrifices. You know, I'm in my 20s and all my friends are living in Chicago or L.A. or New York and they're having the time of their lives. And I'm living in Traverse City, Michigan or Bristol, Connecticut or Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Apologies to all those towns, by the way. <laughs> uh, and um, my days off are Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Right. And my social life is in the gutter. But every day I go to work and I loved what I did and that made it worth it. But there's a story behind the story of how you got that job in Traverse City. There's a story with everything. <laughs> so I am working. So after college, I went to USC in LA for college and I was trying to get on the air somewhere and I was looking, you know, that's the whole, that's one of the challenges of this business. How do you get on the air? And I knew I, I was in Aspen, Colorado the year before for like a week and noticed this local cable access channel. And I called him up. I'm like, hey, you guys looking for a sportscaster? And the guy's like, we've never had a sportscaster. And I said, well, I would move out there and I'll do sportscasts for free. I, was, I would do other things to pay the bills. Would you hire me? And they said, sure. <laughs> this, this is like someone just calling on the phone and they, they let me have, have this job. So I would go over there, over there and I would do sportscasts and I would cover little events like Aspen High School basketball. And one thing I talked earlier about how I like to zag when people are zigging or people are zigging, I'm going to zag, whatever it might be. And there was this event, the America's Uphill, where people showed up at Aspen Mountain and they skied up Aspen Mountain, skied up it. Hold on. Wait a second. They skied up the mountain. Yeah. They cross country skied up Aspen Mountain. I've done cross country skiing. That sounds like you've got to be in fabulous shape. It also yes. sounds crazy. Correct. Correct. <laughs> this actually happened. I think they still do it. And I want to go do the story. And who shows up? Somebody dressed as Elvis is competing in this event. And so I decided I'm not going to do a story on this event called the America's Uphill. I'm doing a story on this guy dressed as Elvis, who is going to somehow, some way with the Elvis hairdo and the Elvis costume find his way by skiing up Aspen Mountain. And that's what I did a story on. And I sent a tape to Traverse City, Michigan. And lo and behold, I was hired. By the way, the guy who I replaced was none other than Scott Hansen, who went on to NFL Network. Oh, right. Wow. I replaced him. And I learned a very important lesson that I try to tell people all the time. 
I originally was applying for a job in Springfield, Illinois. And by the way, this could work for any profession. doesn't have to be just sports casting. I was applying for a job in Springfield, Illinois, and I got to it late. They had already hired somebody. I called and they said, yeah, we hired someone. And then this little thing entered my brain to ask a follow-up question. And in this business, usually the follow-up question gives the better answer. The follow-up question was, oh, do you know where this person came from? Where did you hire this person from? And the person on the other end of the line said, I think he was working in Traverse City, Michigan. Bingo. So I called the two stations in Traverse City, Michigan. And the first one I called, actually, I only needed to call one. It was the NBC affiliate. They said, yeah, uh, we just found out Scott Hansen's leaving. So I got in early on that job. And the person who hired me later said, the reason why I hired you was because of that Elvis story that you did. It stood out. If you want to hear more guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, all you have to do is go to Last Word on Sports on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the many wonderful interviews we've done dating back to January of 2021. We resume with Chuck Garfine on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. You were one of the originals at ESPN News since, I think, 1996. Mm -hmm. You were only 25. Tell me a story I don't know, Chuck. What that experience was like for you? Well, here's the story. I was so not ready for that job. <laughs> not ready for prime time? No, I was not. <laughs> I was a single-A player called up to the big leagues. I had only been doing TV sports casting for a little over a year. I went from doing three to four minute sports casts to solo anchoring three and four hour shows on ESPN News. And before I did ESPN News, so I'm hired there. The first thing they had me do, I anchored a sports center, a 630 sports center with Brett Haber because ESPN News hadn't gone on the air yet. Was I prepared for that? Hell no. No way. Did I learn a ton? I learned everything I needed to know, know about sports casting by anchoring those shows. But, you know, it was a challenge to say the least. The guys who were hired, it was me, Mike Greenberg, John Butchigrass, Michael Kim, Dave Rebson, Brian Kenny, David Lloyd. What it did for me, besides destroying all my brain cells, <laughs> it taught me how to really be an anchor. It taught me how to get out of any situation, any negative situation, because live TV is very, very challenging. And you're they're throwing, you know, college basketball highlights at you. You're doing it blind. They're they're throwing NHL highlights at you with all the pronunciations, and you had to do it and know it. And you're reading highlights blind and you're on the air on ESPN news. And all of a sudden, Hey, uh, we're going to welcome the viewers on ESPN right now. They're talking so much in your ear and you really had your, you had to really strengthen your sports casting muscles. And I, you know, you basically to this day, if you throw the S H I T can hit the fan mm -hmm. on the air and I will find a way to get out of it because of what I learned at ESPN. Some could handle it better than others. Mike Greenberg was probably the best at it. Uh, one of the worst was probably me. And that's why I only lasted three years. <laughs> they didn't renew my contract after three years. And I went back to Chicago and it took a year to get another job. I knew I had so much more left in me that I was not going to give up. No way. Um, you know, I, I, so I never came close to doing that. Was it difficult? Was it challenging? Was it a, a blow to my ego? Yes. But I knew that uh, someone, and all it takes is someone to see in you what you know what's inside of you. And someone did. And, and that has continued to happen since then. But I, I never thought about quitting. No way. It sounds like, Chuck, part of your perseverance comes from your childhood. You grew up, like many of us in this business, loving sports. But when did you know you wanted to make a career out of this? This is kind of something that came from the heavens. And what I mean by that is, you know, I grew up loving Chicago sports. I would 
record my own sports radio show into a tape recorder when I was a kid. I don't know where those tapes are. I don't think they exist anymore. Oh, you have to find them. Yeah, I don't think that they, they're gone. I don't know where they are. I mean, it's they don't. I know they don't exist. So and probably better for it. Uh, and then I get to high school, and there was a. I go to Homewood Flossmoor High School, public school in Flossmoor, and they. I go to orientation for freshman year, and I found out that they have a high school radio station. What? A high school radio station, and they have a sports department and. They're calling basketball games and football games and people do sports casts. I felt like this was specifically meant for me. And that got me on this path to where I am today. And there are a bunch of us fortunate souls who just happened to be, by luck, our parents decided to live in Flossmore or Homewood and go to Homewood Flossmore High School and get this kind of very, very unique sports casting, broadcasting experience in high school. It's the highest powered high school radio station in the country, WHFH Radio. I went through it. So did Jason Benetti, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. And Ben Bradley and Lawrence Holmes and Scott Merkin of MLB.com. I mean, we Paul, just- Paul Sullivan. Paul Sullivan, although Paul wasn't, I don't think he did anything with the radio station. Nobody. Paul did go to HF. He was more on the journalism side. and. To show you the kind of start that I had, you had to write, produce, and direct a 50-minute radio documentary and air it live on the radio station. Mm. I did that my sophomore year. I was the news and sports director my junior year, station manager, senior year. I had this resume and a half at 18. I go to USC, this big Pac-10 school, now Pac-12 school. It's my first week there. I go, hey, I'm going to the radio station. I want to continue what I've been doing here at USC, what I was doing back in Flossmoor. I bring my resume to the guy who's running the program. He looks at my resume. He looks at me and he says, you have more experience than I do. <laughs> this guy was a senior at USC. So that shows you the start that I had. And I just knew very early on that this came, I don't want to say easy to me, but this spoke to me unlike everything else I was learning in high school, math, science, I had very little interest in that broadcasting sports casting. That was like deep in my bones of something that I felt like I wanted to do and I could do. And I went all for it. So then lucky you at age 18, you got to interview the one and only Michael Jordan. Yeah. This is a story that I wish had turned out a little bit better for myself from a broadcasting, I guess, journalistic standpoint. And what I mean by that is I'm very hard on myself. I always want to be, if not perfect, close to perfect, or as good as I possibly can be. So the story behind this is that I am 18, and I somehow find an internship with uh, this radio network. I believe it was called the PIA Radio Network. Uh, you remember Jim Volkman? I sure do. He's the guy who did the great Harry Carey impression. Yeah, I think Jim Volkman was the one who hired me. I, I'm a little hazy on how I got this job, but basically it was this syndicated radio network where they went and got sound post-game sound uh, in locker rooms in Chicago. They would have someone just go in there, hold a microphone, get the sound, and they'd send it out to all their affiliates. I was hired as an intern to do this. And this one game that I was assigned to was a Bulls-Cavs game in 1989. This is a game that is lost in Michael Jordan history. And if I was to ever do a documentary on Michael Jordan, I know that it was in the last dance, Michael Jordan, this should have been discussed in my opinion, this game. Because everyone remembers the Craig Elo shot, the of shot course. over Craig Elo, right? It's iconic. What makes that shot so incredible is that that season, the Bulls had played the Cavs six times. The Bulls had Jordan, they had Pippen, they had Bill Cartwright, Horace Grant, Doug Collins was the coach. The Cleveland Cavaliers had Mark Price, Brad Dougherty, Larry Nance, they had Ron a really Harper. good team. They were better than the Bulls. And that season, the Cavs had beaten the Bulls five times in five games. They were mm -hmm. five and zero oh against the Bulls. And the last game of the regular season, the Cavs came to Chicago Stadium. This is a game I went to cover. The Cavs, Lenny Wilkins, the head coach, decided to rest his three all-stars. No Mark Price, no Brad Doherty, no Larry Nance. They played this guy named Randolph Keys like 35 minutes. He was a rookie. He barely played. 
the Bulls played everybody. And a few days later, the Bulls and Cavs were already going to be facing each other in the playoffs. The Bulls still lost. They lost this game with all their starters. So the Bulls went 0-6 against the Cleveland Cavaliers that season. So I go into the locker room. I'm waiting to go in the locker room. Doug Collins and Jerry Krause give it. Yeah, both of them give a speech to the team after this loss in the locker room before we get in. They open the door. Who comes racing out? Dressed, ready to leave. It's Jordan. All the media goes into the locker room. I follow Michael Jordan to his car. In other words, you zagged when everybody zigged. I totally zagged. I was zagging when I was 18. <laughs> I've never been in a locker room before. This is my first time. Actually, I didn't even go in it. Or maybe I went after. I went after. So Jordan, back then, and you know this, the locker room was below the, the Chicago stadium floor. He had to walk up these steps. Mm-hmm. And he, at this point, everyone had left the stadium, Chicago stadium. He's walking across the court. There's nobody in the building, but me and Michael Jordan. I've got my microphone. I'm probably shaking. I have really never done an interview before. I was doing some interviews over the phone at WHFH, our, our high school radio station, but never in person. And my, my first one is Michael Jordan. My questions were not good. I'm just like, yeah, humma, humma, humma. Like, he doesn't <laughs> want to talk to any interviews with anybody, clearly. And here's this 18-year-old kid following him, walking across the court, trying to get some sound from Jordan. And despite my terrible questions, which I don't remember, and I do not have the tape anymore because I threw it out. I was so embarrassed by my questions. Jordan gave me three answers, maybe four. And he was very polite, very professional. And he was on his way after my three or four questions about just, you know, I don't even know what my questions were. I've kind of buried it, even though I shouldn't have. I thought bigger Michael Jordan interviews were coming for me. This was my last, my first and last. I don't think there's gonna be another one. But uh, that was something that I'll never forget. I interviewed Michael Jordan. It wasn't a great interview, but I got him. And I was the only one, the only one who got Michael Jordan uh, in an interview back in 1989, and to flip ahead, to put a bookend on this story, what happens? They go to the playoffs. Jordan hits that shot over Elo. The inbounds pass comes into Jordan. Here's Michael at the foul line. A shot on Elo. Good! The Bulls win! They win! Set the Cleveland Cavaliers! Michael Jordan hits it at the foul line. One to 100. 20,273 in stunned silence here in the Coliseum. They beat the Cavaliers. They knock them out of the playoffs. And instead of there being a Cleveland Cavaliers dynasty in the 90s, it was the Bulls. You know, you remind me a little bit of me in the zigzag. And I'll give you the other example. It was 1980. And it was the first Final Four that I covered in Indianapolis. Very lucky because then the UPI sports director, who happened to be Sam Rosen at the time, mm-hmm. somebody was ill. And he said, would you like to cover? And I was like, I'm a, I'm a freelancer. Are you kidding? Of course I will. So this was... UCLA, Louisville, Iowa, and Purdue. UCLA, UCLA and Louisville played for the championship. It was Larry Brown, the coach of UCLA, and mm-hmm. Denny Crum. Now, this was at the old Market Square Arena. And back then, I could do something that you can't do now. As the game is winding down, I move from the press box way above down to near the first row. And when Louisville wins... I walk on the court, and there is Denny Crum. He's just standing there. And I asked him three or four questions, and I raced into the interview room and sent them to UPI before there was even a press conference. So I zagged when everybody zigged. (laughs) Now, you don't. the risk with zigging when everyone is zagging is you could miss something That's right. But I pick my spots. And if I know there's another reporter that I'm working with, who can get that right and not missing anything, that's usually when I really go in and zag. So you've settled down, you're married, you have a job you love, and you're young, at least in my eyes, you're young. (laughs) So is there a what's next? Or can you imagine doing this for a long time to come? Yeah, you know what? There was a lot of what's next for me for 10 (laughs) years. A lot of what's next. I just wasn't uh, ever settled right? And wanting to move on. And it was funny because I'd work in, say, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And 
I was like, what's next? What's next? And there were people there who were not, they were so satisfied with living in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. They weren't um, looking for the next thing. And they're still there today. And they were so happy and they are so happy with their lives. You know, I'm from Chicago. So, and I know what Chicago sports is all about. And there, it's in my blood. That was always my what's next. So the fact that I'm here and I'm, have been re able to live out my dream, you know, I'm, I haven't really been looking for the what's next. I ask this final question to all my guests, Chuck. If not for sports broadcasting, what would you have been? I don't know. I don't know. Um, maybe a writer, uh, maybe a psychologist. My mom uh, was a school psychologist in the Chicago Public School District for 20, 30 years. Um, you know, I, I do not know the answer to that. I could come up with some things like I have, but when you're 14 and you know what you want to do, you really, really know what you want to do. Nothing else is going to invade that part of my mind. But realistically, there was no alternative. It was sportscasting or bust for me. Well, I think you got the best job going. There's never a dull moment with Ozzy and you're clearly thriving and anybody can see that. It's been a long, somewhat bumpy road you traveled, but I think the potholes are well behind you. Thank you, Chuck Garfine, for telling me a story. I don't know. I appreciate it. And by the way, some of the best lessons I received in my life were the bumps. So, George, thank you so much for uh, uh, inviting me on your podcast and having this conversation. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. My thanks to NBC Sports Chicago, Fox Sports, Bally Sports Great Lakes, and the late and great Jim Durham and Red Kerr for those wonderful highlights. And my thanks as always to the people behind the scenes that help make this wonderful podcast possible. TJ Reeves for putting us on the map, Will Hatzel for his crafty editing, Nick Tochi for our wonderful graphics, and to our new partner, Last Word on Sports. And to our presenting sponsor, Mr. Duct. You can find them at mrductcleaning.com. Tune in next week when we feature another intriguing guest on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.